Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. I'm ready to get to it. Turn with me to Psalm 50, please. Psalm 50. Psalm 50. And I'm going to start in verse number 11 of Psalm 50. And pardon my voice, the one thing they didn't tell me about the Ohio Valley is it's like number two in the nation for allergies. I literally, I, I pulled into Michigan and I could feel I'm breathing better, like, 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 like already, because stuff already died up here. It's still floating around down there. Hallelujah, I'm getting used to that, so my, my voice is a little trashed. Psalm 50, starting verse 11. I know all the birds of the mountains, the wild beasts of the field are mine. And God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine in all of its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Now let me, uh, before I get into this actual text, uh, I want to just share with you a little bit of uh, where I'm going to go tonight. You know, Every September, pretty much around September is when God begins to really kind of stir some things in me about the coming year. Normally September, October, November, I'm already kind of gearing already up for the next year. And of course, because we're stepping into 2020, uh, you know, there you know, obviously everybody's going to be preaching on vision probably in 2020 in some form, you know, because it's having 2020 vision, clear vision. I mean, it's all going to be about that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, we just tend to, especially in the charismatic world, we love to make all the rhymes, you know, it's like, you know, don't be late in 08 and you're going to go to heaven in 07. And I mean, you know, we, we always, we seem to always come up with something like that. But what God began to really deal with me about, of course, is 2020 is always used a lot of times also in the concept of hindsight. Is a you know the, the saying that hindsight is is 2020. There's something about when you look back. I, I have been accused for at least the last 10 to 15 years of going to places and just you're just always trying to come up with something new just to mess with people. I mean, that's literally what I've had churches tell me. And the truth is, it's not anything new that I'm sharing. Actually, a lot of what I preach is actually old. Uh, It's actually what the first two centuries of the church actually believed a lot of times what they preached. And what we've done is we've kind of swallowed in the Western culture a whole mindset of of who God is. And it's going through this window and through this glass darkly of of Calvinism and Protestantism and all of these other things. And I just made up my mind a long time ago. I want to know what the guys that were the sons of the apostles and the grandsons of the apostles who got it directly from the apostles, who got it directly from Jesus. I mean, I want to at least know at least a couple generations stuff they had to say. And, and, and the thing is, is much of the Protestant church, we've thrown all that away because we just think it's all Catholic. And the truth is nothing became Catholic after the year 400. That's when everything got uh, turned into a hierarchy and it turned into man-centered and it turned into popes and cardinals and all of the mess that that then turned into. But before that, especially the first 200 years, there was a lot of things that they believed and that they taught that would actually shock. Matter of fact, most of the early patristic fathers would be called heretics in America. 
with a lot of the things that they taught, a lot of things that they believed, uh, we would actually probably never even follow them on Facebook. And so what I found is this, is many times for me to go forward, I have to also at times look backwards. Now, I know I'm one, you know, I've taught for years that if you're heading forward, don't stare in the rearview mirror, you'll go in the ditch. All right, you know, the mirrors are for us to glance at. But this year, especially going into 2020, Holy Spirit really began to deal with me about glancing back at some of my foundations. You know, just because we've got a revelation of grace and we've got a revelation of the new covenant doesn't mean we throw out the power of our confession. It doesn't mean that, that we throw out a lot of the things that were taught to us that were correct things. It's just now we look at them through a different lens. Now, now we're not trying to make a confession to try to get God to do something for us. We realize God's already done everything, and my confession is simply agreeing with him, and I'm not working this thing. I'm not trying to get him to do something. I'm already blessed, and I'm functioning from a place of already, I'm functioning from, not for. I'm not trying to get God, I'm not trying to earn his love. I'm not trying to earn his, his, his respect. I'm not trying to get him to bless me. I'm already loved. I'm already blessed. And from that posture, there's things that I do. But one of the things that we have to be careful of is that it seems like once we get a revelation of God's goodness and grace, the word work has almost become a four-letter cuss word. It's like if a pastor gets up and preaches on a Sunday in a New Covenant Grace Church, and starts talking about works, people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute here, man. You're trying to put me back under the law. You're trying to, you know, I'm not saved by works. You're right. You're not saved by works, but we are saved for good works. The difference is I'm not working for God anymore. Now I've learned to work with God. It, it, it's not from a mindset of I'm trying to, I'm trying to twist God's arm. I'm not praying and fasting and giving and doing all these things to try to get God to do something that he's not already done. I'm doing these things because they're still in Christianity in the new covenant. There is personal disciplines as a disciple that are still good things to do. And sometimes what we do is the pendulum swings. We, 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 we've been under works for so long, and then the pendulum swings. We're over here, we're like, whoo, I'm free. You know, now, and, and, you know, I heard Joseph Prince, and Joseph Prince says it's not what I do, 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 but what he's done, 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 but then the churches can't get anybody to do, do, do anything. And the truth is this. If you're going to have a functioning family, a functioning body, every part of the body needs to find something to do so the body is functioning properly. All right, it's, it's not about trying to put anybody under some type of legalism or obligation or bondage. The truth is, is if we don't give to something, it goes away. If we don't help out, it stops functioning, period. That's just life. And so Lord began to remind me of a couple of foundational things that I want to share with you now through, through this lens. This passage in the last couple of months has just been jumping off the page at me. So I remember several years ago, uh, when it first jumped off the page at me, it bugged me because when I read my when I read the scriptures, I mean God says something like, "If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you," and that bugs me. I'm like, number one, can God get hungry? And if He can get hungry, how come He won't tell me? I mean, I want to know what, what what's the matter? What God? Why wouldn't you tell us? But so the first thing I had to decide is, can God get hungry? Because I was raised 
I went to Bible school, and this is what I was taught. God is omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's almighty. God is all-powerful. God is God. And we didn't even just say God. It was God is God. Because for some reason we put W's on God. Just these. God is God, and he's God all by himself. And God, need, he doesn't need you. He doesn't need anything. He's just God. And I believe that until 1992 I was sitting in Bay City at a Red Lobster with uh, Dr. Fuchsia Pickett, who was one of my mamas in the faith. She looked across the table and she said, you went to Bible school, you got out of Bible school, you've been preaching. I bet you were taught that God needs nothing. I'm like, absolutely. God doesn't need anything. She said, but God is love. And she said, above everything else, love cannot be love all by itself. Love needs a recipient. Love needs an object of its affection. You can, so the Father and the Son and the Spirit all in this incredible intertheistic covenant and relationship together, this family union as they gather together and sharing this family love. They're like, you know what? This is beautiful, but this is not enough. We want something to pour this love into. And so the Godhead creates mankind. He takes a piece of dust and he breathes his breath into mankind. And he says, now I have something to pour my love into because I'm not needy, but because I'm love, I need to give this away. And so I said, okay, if God needs some things, then maybe maybe God can get hungry. And then it dawned on me, kind of like a big duh, Jesus was God in the flesh. And Jesus seemed to do his best work around tables. He seemed to always be just eating, just, you know. He was a good reverend, R-E-V, rest, eat, and visit, hallelujah. He learned, he learned to potluck with the best of them, Jesus. Just learned how to do that because in the Middle East, that's how you built relationships around a shared meal, around, around a table. And so then it hit me, after the resurrection, Jesus calls out to his disciples who were out in the boat, and Peter jumps out of the boat, swims in. I think he thought he was going to walk on water that time. He missed that one. And Jesus is cooking some fish on the shore. One thing that blesses me about that, when we get our new bodies, after the resurrection, we're still going to be eaten. Uh, we're just not going to have to worry about any weight. Glory to God. Just We're going to be able to eat and eat and eat and eat. Man, just, that means God showed us that he does get hungry. But now on this side of the cross, he's showing us how to feed him. Psalm 50 wasn't speaking to us. It was speaking to a specific people at a specific time. It was speaking to a people who were under an old covenant. And under the old covenant, people didn't know how to feed God because their whole relationship with God was an economy of exchange. In other words, it was all what God could do for them, and God had to give that to them because he wanted a different kind of relationship with them, but they decided they didn't want that. And let me just throw a little nugget in here for you. Do you realize I put this up on Facebook not too long ago? That Moses added to what God said. I don't know if you realize this. He actually did it a couple times. But the main one that jacked everything up Moses goes up on the mountain, he meets with God. And God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go back down and tell the people that I want them to sanctify themselves for three days. On the third day, cleanse themselves. 
and then come and stand before me on the mountain. Because I want a kingdom of priests. I want, I want a family. I want sons and daughters. So Moses comes down from the mountain and he says, thus says the Lord, sanctify yourself for three days. On the third day, cleanse yourself and no sex with your wives. You ever notice that before? Moses threw in there no intimacy. No wonder the people didn't want to come and stand before God because Moses had already convinced them that this God that they were supposed to have relationship with wasn't about intimacy in the first place. Because you can't be intimate with the person you love the most, so how can you be intimate with him? He's someone to be feared, not someone to be intimate with. Anyway, you know, think about that one for a minute. Hmm? And so, in the old covenant, it was all, God says, if you do this, then I'll do this. You do that, then I'll do that. It was all based on this relationship that was tit for tat. You do your part. I remember I preached in the 90s a whole series of revival meetings. How you respond to God is how God responds to you. And it got a lot of people at the altar, but it's just stupid. Because the truth is this, I, whether you respond to God or not, he responded to you 2,000 years ago. Regardless of what you do, he already made up his mind to do something. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel. Is it's not about what you did, it's what he did. But it sounded good, you know, how you respond to God. So God responds to you. And so as I began to think about this, I said, okay, God can get hungry. God couldn't tell them because they were consumed with God feeding them and never dawned on them that God gets hungry. Matter of fact, there was only really one or two people in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, Abraham was even before the Old Covenant, who knew how to feed God. Because God is hungry for fellowship with his family. Let me tell you something, I don't, I will chase, I move from Bay City to Southern Indiana to be around my granddaughter. I will chase her. I'll chase my kids. I don't care what they got going on. If you're a father, you're a mother, you love your kids, you love your grandkids, you will, you will sacrifice to go spend time with them. But see, for some reason, I think we got this mindset when it came to God. I, I remember, let me, let me give you an example. Late 90s, Tommy Tenney wrote a book called God Chasers. How many of y'all remember that? God Chasers. Read the book. Premise of the book is great. Couldn't stand the title. Title, it just got on my nerves for like six months, and I didn't know why. Every time I'd look at the title, it just it would irritate me. It rubbed me the wrong way, and I'm, I, I, I didn't understand why until all of a sudden the Holy Spirit began to explain my irritation. He said, it's still Old Covenant, because in the Old Covenant, you do this, then God would do this. He said, God's actually the chaser. See, listen, God relates to us mainly in two ways, and I've shared this here before, but I think mean, you need to hear it again. First of all, he relates to us as his wife, his bride. That's vertical. God releasing his life into the womb of our life. Then he also calls us sons. And sons aren't about receiving this way. Sons are about now giving life. As his bride, we receive seed. As sons, we give seed. It's why all creation is not groaning for a manifestation of the son. All creation is not groaning for a manifestation of the church but of the sons of God, 
right? Because what he's placed in you, now you begin to release it to others. This is making sense to anybody. And so both relationships don't chase the men around, especially in Middle Eastern culture. Think about this. It's a good thing for a man to find a wife. It doesn't say it's a good thing for a wife to find a man. Because the pursuer is the he, not the she. So we get this idea of God chasing. First of all, it doesn't work in the husband-wife relationship because it's the husband that is pursuing his wife. It doesn't work in the father-son relationship because if a son has to chase his daddy around, daddy's late on child support. It means daddy don't want a relationship with his son. If I have to chase my father around, something's messed up. My child should be able to have continual access to me 24-7. They got keys to my house because it's their house. It's inheritance. They don't even knock on the door. They just walk in. Something, see, our relationship, our relationship with him has everything to do with how he relates to us. And it dawned on me why I was getting so frustrated with being a God chaser because if I have to chase him around, it means I don't believe I'm in union with him. If, if, if I have to chase him from one revival to another, that means he's over yonder and that's an old covenant mindset of somewhere I have to go to meet with God. I gotta go to the temple in Jerusalem. I've gotta go somewhere rather than realize he's taken up his residence in me and right now, no you not, no you not, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That he's now living in you. You're in union with him. You're one. He doesn't jump in and jump out. He's always with you. He's a very present help in time of trouble. It's why... I remember a few years ago I was preaching a conference, and it was a it was kind of a stream of folks that I normally don't I don't preach much in their circles. It doesn't mean I'm against them, good people. But uh, this is how the service started: ten young people up front for the first half hour. Oh, man, they're bombarding heaven. I mean, you know, they're like Jews at the wailing wall. Oh God! In this service tonight, rend the heavens and come down. Oh, God, come and visit us. I mean, this went on for like a half hour. Then the worship service started, and it was an hour of singing about that. It was all just begging God to show up, anointings to fall out of the sky. And I mean, and I'm in the front row having this discussion with the Holy Spirit because I can't even read my text because my text is about to rebuke everything from the last hour and 20 minutes. I mean, not even preaching, just reading the scriptures. And I'm sitting there like, you know, God, I, you know, I, I, I like friends. I don't, you know, I don't on purpose try to rub people the wrong way. You know, I really like people to like me like anybody else. And so I got up and the Holy Spirit gave me a little wisdom. And I said, how many, I said, during the worship as I was sitting there, it became clear as a bell to me, the ruling spirit over this region. How many want to know the ruling spirit over this region? I mean, you could have heard a pin drop like, they're waiting for me to say Jezebel, religion. And I said, are you ready? They're like, yeah. I said, the Holy Spirit. It didn't go over real well. <laughs> Jesus is Lord is not what we really believe, I guess. it's Even though he's seated far above principalities and powers, he spoiled all the works of the enemy. He rendered the devil powerless. But, but, but we, won't, we won't discuss that. And then I, I read my text, 
Romans chapter 10. The righteousness, Paul said, that is by faith does not say, I will ascend to heaven and bring God down here. Nor descend to the depths and bring him up. But the word is not you, even in your mouth, the word of faith that we preach. In other words, he's as close as the mention of his name. The kingdom of God is voice activated. You don't try to bring him down from the sky. He's already here. You might not be aware of it, but he's already there. And all you got to do is open your mouth and you'll see a manifestation. You see, when that's our mentality, then we're always living this dualistic life rather than union with the Godhead, rather than knowing that no matter where I go, he's there. No matter what I'm experiencing, he's there, good, bad, and ugly. Even when you're sinning, even when you're doing something stupid, he's still there. He's going, come on, man, what you doing? You're better than that. Don't you know who your daddy is? Come on, what's going on? God said, if I were hungry, in the old covenant, he said, I wouldn't tell you. It seemed like only Abraham understood this. As one day, God appears to Abram, and he says, I'm giving you a promise. Your children, your seed, are going to bless nations. And so, of course, we know the story 25, 30 years ago by, and it didn't happen. And his wife just decided to take it in her own hands. And I got to be honest with you, I read some of the Old Testament, and I just shake my head. It's like, it's like the hills of West Virginia type stuff. I mean, what, what kind of wife goes to her husband and says, listen, I'm going to give you my friend here so you can have a baby. I'm, I mean, that's some jacked up stuff right there. I'm... <laughs> I mean, you read, I think we read some of that stuff and we don't put it in the context of today. I mean, imagine a woman telling her husband, hey, it's okay. And the husband would be like, this is a trick. This is a trick. I don't. <laughs> She's trying to test me around. I mean, there's some jacked up stuff in that Old Testament. It'll make your head spin. So Ishmael is birthed. A few years later, God shows up and he happens to show up in the form of three men. I believe it's a beautiful picture of the Godhead. Shows up in three men and he tells them what I promised you 40 years ago is now getting ready to happen. And God turns around to walk away and Abraham says, wait a minute, stay here and let me feed you. He spreads a table for God. Can you imagine feeding God, a human fed God, would that be a little intimidating? It'd be like Bobby Flay coming to your house. I mean, the person that knows the best of the best spices, who knows exactly how to cook everything to perfection, but I don't think God even cared about the food. He, what he cared about was the relationship. That God's always been hungry for his kids. That's why God didn't kick Adam and Eve to the curb. He came down to walk with them because he always wanted relationship. He's hungry for fellowship with us. He can't wait till you wake up every morning just so hopefully you'll open your heart enough for him to say, hey. His heart has always been not about a religion. It's always been about a relationship. And I think it's so easy sometimes in churchianity to get all busy doing stuff for God that we forget the most important thing is spreading a table for him. 
It's taking that time. And I'm, I'm not saying you got to get up at 5 a.m. and get in your devos. That'll, that'll put you right back under all kinds of bondage. What I'm saying is that throughout the day, I mean, I mean, think about how many of us were taught to have a relationship with God. You get up early in the morning to read his book. It would be like me waking up in the morning, waking my wife up. Hey, hey, get up. And I got to spend an hour. So for an hour, I'm going to tell you all of my problems, everything I'm going through, everything I'm frustrated about. Every once in a while, I say thank you and praise you. And then the only other time I talk to her the rest of the day is at mealtime when I say thank you for the food. That's kind of really how folks were taught how to have a relationship with God. Rather than realize that this is something, guess what? You, you text during the day. You phone, hey, baby, who's just thinking about you today? It's a relationship. And a relationship is open 24-7. God is hungry, and as his wife, who's doing the cooking? That doesn't mean that men can't cook, but when the Bible was written, It's only the male priest that was doing some cooking. That's well, most of the time it was still it was still the ladies. There's there's this relationship that God hungers for with us. But the beautiful thing is, is He already spread the most amazing table for us. Matter of fact, when you go over to the New Testament, I think it's an amazing picture. Is Jesus said this to one of the churches in Asia? He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man would hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Man, we used to use that verse as a salvation verse. But the truth is Jesus was speaking to the church who he was already in. This wasn't Jesus knocking at the door of the church saying, let me in the church. This was Jesus in the church knocking on the door saying, let me out. He's already in your heart wanting to get into your soul and fellowship and sup with you, spill out in your body. He's functioning from the inside out, not the outside in. The old covenant was the outside in. You start in the outer court, the inner court, the holy of holies. In the new covenant, you started in the spirit, Paul said. You ended up in the flesh. Now the first is last and the last is first. You start in the holy of holies and work your way out. That's why you work out your salvation not for your salvation. God's like, listen, man, I'm inside of you trying to get loose in you. Let me out. I want to I flow through you because guess what? You came to me and you thirsted and now you're no longer thirsty. Now out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. In other words, you're now the source of supply. You're not the thirsty one. I've had people for years come to altars and say, would you pray for me? I'm going through a dry season. And I, I was never ugly. I always said, I understand what you're saying, but it's impossible. It's impossible for any believer to go through a dry season. The only reason you're dry is because you believed a lie that you could be dry. Because Jesus said, you drink the water I give, you'll never thirst again. Now, you may go through trying seasons. You may go through some trouble. Matter of fact, he promised that. But you've got an artesian well on the inside of you. And the only thing that causes us to be dry is we believe the lie that we can be dry. Truth is, you've got abundance. All, everything you need for life and godliness right on the inside of you. And the heart of the Father is he's like, listen, man. Listen, if pastor showed up at your house at supper time, how many know he's not bringing the vittles? 
because he come into your house at supper time. I think we've read that passage thinking God's the one spreading the table. But God said, no, listen, I want to show up at your, I'm, I'm showing up at your place. And who's spreading the table is you. So what are you feeding me? I don't think there's an accident that Jesus walks into the temple one day and he starts overturning tables. I think it's a beautiful picture of what happens when he comes inside of us or when we get the revelation that he was always there. When we come to this awareness that Christ in you is the hope of glory, he does the same thing. He starts overturning tables. He says, that that don't smell right. That doesn't feed me. That doesn't belong there. He starts dealing with all the, the nations. I shared that almost two years ago now in the, the saving of the soul. He starts removing all the, the 31 kings of the book of Joshua. He removes all the nations, the condemnations, the imaginations, the denominations, all the rulers and squatters that have been in his promised land, which is our soul, long, long before we awaken to the reality that he was there. And what begins to then manifest in our lives is this incredible heart where he's like, I'm overturning all the tables because the only thing I want left is me written on the tables of your heart. And that's why he came in and he overturned the table of those that sold oxen because oxen was a picture of the law. And he's like, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He overturned the table, overturned the tables of those uh, that also sold lambs because the lamb was now in the temple. But he didn't overturn the table of those that sold doves because he wants the doves still in the house. Hmm? He still loves that. He said, let me, let me, let me. Let me move this out of the way. and let me. I'm glad he does it so sweetly and gently. He doesn't come in screaming. That's why, that's why David said that it's sweet in our mouth. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The book of Revelation says it's sweet in our mouth but bitter in our belly. Because when you first taste of the Lord, oh, it's so sweet and it's so good. But then he, he begins to, on the inside of you, begins to drive out everything that don't smell right. And he's like, let me, let me get that out of the way and let me remove that out of the way and let me, let me deal with this lie. Let me deal with this thought. Let me deal with this nation. Let me, let me just sweetly and beautifully begin to transform your life from the inside out. There's no accident he tells us that we can spread a table in the presence of our enemies. Or that he'll spread a table for us in the wilderness that when you feel dry, there's a table there with everything you need. No matter what you're going through, he's like, man, I've got this for you. Because God is the one that is the chaser. See, once you realize that he even said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He's been stalking you for a long time. I remember in the 90s, I... I started preaching a series of messages called, What Does God Chase? Rather than being a God chaser, maybe we need to realize that we're not only in union with him, but it's no longer we that live, but Christ that lives in us. So it's not about what I chase. It's about what is God chasing. And if I'm in union with him, I need to chase what he chases. And I found 15 things that God chases after he seeks lost sheep. 
He seeks, according to Malachi 2, godly offspring. He seeks worshipers. There's all these things that God chases down. I said, why don't we start chasing down what he chases down, and then we're going to see the manifestation of what he promised. Instead, we're, we're running to altars. Where are you, God? Screaming, oh, God! Rend the heavens and come down! And he's like, are you serious? I rent the heavens a long time ago. I came out of the Jordan River. The heavens were rent, and there's no verse that says they shut. You live under an open heaven, man. You are an open heaven. But no, I'm the one that chased you down. You just woke up to reality and got caught. And I'm always pursuing relationship with you. Now watch, let me, let me shift the gear. He's not only hungry for intimacy and fellowship with us. But he's hungry for our hearts. You know, I, I, I'm going to probably put it in my next book. I probably should have put it in this one. I'm, I'm at a season of life where I do not believe anymore. And pastor can clean this up after I leave. I, I do not believe. There's no scripture and verse that says you invite Jesus into your heart. It does say that you believe in your heart and you confess, but it doesn't say you invite him into your heart. The donut man had it wrong. Remember that little little donut man story? It's just in your heart, you know, you got a hole like a donut, and it was called the donut man. The whole, whole little cartoon, the whole little whole little program, this little kind of cheesy Christian stuff we used to have. It was all about getting the hole in your heart filled up. But what I've realized is that he's above all, he's through all, and he's in all. John 1 says that he is the light of all men. That means he's he's the image of God. We bear his image because we're his children. We're all God's offspring. And the gospel is not about trying to get God into your heart. It's about revealing Christ in you is already the hope of glory. That's why Paul said it's a mystery that's been hidden from the ages and the mystery is to the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So our message that's a mystery to Gentiles is not about trying to get Christ in them. It's revealing Christ is already there. You just don't know it because you're not aware. And once you become aware and you believe, all of a sudden it becomes a reality. That's like really good news. The good news is God don't like you. He don't even look at you. He can't stand you until you go and run to an altar and cry for a while. The truth is he's always been pursuing you. He's always loved you. He's always been passionate about you. He called you before the foundations of the world even existed. That's his heart for you. That's why we then start to preach to the sun in people rather than the sin in people. It's about exposing the sun. See, that's why there was a veil always in the way. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, when the veil gets removed, you begin to see Christ. Anytime you turn to Christ, the veil is removed. And what's revealed? Christ in you. He's already there. It's like, well, bless God. I got born again in 1984. And I've been bold enough to say this over the last year or two. Uh, The truth is, you didn't get born again in 1984. According to 2 Peter chapter 1, you were born again of incorruptible seed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You got born again 2,000 years ago. You just woke up to the reality in 1984. Hmm. That, that's when you awakened 
to the reality of what was true of you 2,000 years ago. That's why Colossians 2 even tells us that when you were dead in your trespasses, he quickened you, made you alive, and completely forgave you. That happened before you were ever on the planet. But it doesn't become a reality until you believe. So if you don't believe it, you don't enjoy Imagine living your whole life in poverty and in bondage, and you find out at 80 years old that your daddy left you $10 million in the bank. And you lived your whole life not knowing you're a son because no one told you what was in the bank. That's the proclamation of the gospel. That's what makes it such good news, man. That's really good news. Now watch. His desire is for what we hold on to the most. Our heart represents our treasure. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the things that we treasure the most are the things that are closest to our heart. I, I will never forget the year 2000. I was getting ready to go to Africa for the first time. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me sitting in my office one day. I heard this clear as a bell. He said, when you go to Africa, I want you to take all of your watch collection and put it on the wrist of African pastors. My first response was, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, see, everybody has their things they love. Some, some, you know, ladies, it's purses, maybe shoes. It might be jewelry. Men, men, it might be guns. It might be boats. It might be our toys are a little bit bigger sometimes. Uh, me, I don't really care about a lot of that because I don't have time really for a lot of that. But my thing is I've always loved watches. And the reason is because when I was 11, my grandfather died. And he left all of the grandsons Hamilton watches. And it struck me at 11 years old that there was something tangible that I could actually put on my wrist that reminded me of the relationship I had with my grandfather. And so it, start, it intrigued me at 11. I, I would study watches. I mean, I understood mechanical movement and, and tourbillons. And I, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I've, 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 I've gone places just to try on a million-dollar watch. You know, I mean, even though, you know, I, I don't ever care. For, I mean, I, I'd be terrified to walk around with it, i got to be honest with you. I think I'd, that one would go in a safe, you know. Just, I'd buy one that looks like it. <laughs> But I've just always really enjoyed watches, especially unique ones. And so for that first 10 years of my marriage and traveling, I mean, as I travel, I'd go to, you know, I'd go to pawn shops and there'd be a really nice watch. And half the time, the people in the pawn shops didn't even know what they were. And I'd be like, I'll give you a hundred bucks for that. They're like, okay. I'd be like, I just bought a $2,000 tag ewer. I'd walk out and I'd be like, it was a Gucci, not a Gumi. I bought all these watches, and I loved to mix them up and wear them. And it took me two weeks to realize God was actually talking to me. He said, when you go to Africa, I want you to take all those watches. You can keep one. So I kept my grandpa's. He said, all the rest of them. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in Kenya, and, and I'd be up on the platform, and the Holy Spirit say, that watch, I want you to go give it to that pastor right there. I want you to give it to that one right there. I'd walk up, and I would tell them through the interpreter, God wanted me to give you this watch. And they're like, oh, thank you. Praise the Lord. I'm like. Thank you, praise the Lord. You ought to be just. Listen, man, that, that's a. I said, I didn't go to New York City and a guy open up his jacket and say, I got a deal for you. That, that's some nice stuff up in there. But then my wife and I, we went through a year. Cars, jewelry. It was like 
I would buy something new. I'd buy a new tie, and I'd be like, man, I really like this one. I'd go to preach the next Sunday. This back when we were still wearing suits. Thank you, Jesus. I have, I have no dry cleaning bills anymore. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank God for blue jeans. But I'd have the tie, and someone would walk up and say, man, that's a beautiful tie, and the Holy Spirit would say, give it to him. I, was, I walked out of almost every service with no shoes. Someone walk up and say, man, those are some sweet shoes. Like, we're in Shakota, Oklahoma. Nobody knows where Shakota is. Shakota has been made famous because of one person, Carrie Underwood. But I used to preach every year in Shakota, Oklahoma for Pastor Roy Rogers. And he had a horse named Trigger. True story. And on the way to service the one night, I looked over and my wife had on her 10-year anniversary bracelet. I'd saved up for two years for that. It was like, it was like eight carat, you know, it was baguette diamonds, but it was eight carat, beautiful diamond bracelet. And I said, she don't ever wear that to church. And I knew I'm like, she ain't coming home with that. <laughs> In the middle of the service, I'm preaching and the Holy Spirit whispers to her. She said, I want you to go two seats over. I want you to put it on the wrist of the pastor's wife and tell her that she's loved and she's appreciated. She cried for almost two hours. She, when she finally kind of got over everything, the pastor's wife told us that she'd been in ministry 40 years and no one had ever done anything nice like that for her. I mean, it was like we'd see something and God would be like, can I have it? Can I have it? Because it wasn't about the stuff. God don't care if we have stuff. I gave all my watches away, and within two years, he gave me three of my five dream watches. He never has something from us to not want to get more to us. He just doesn't want stuff to have us. It's when we realize that there is a percentage of giving in the kingdom. It's 100. Because in the new covenant, I own nothing. I possess nothing. I control nothing. I'm simply a steward of what he has, the resources. He flows through me. All I do is just do what he says. I don't own any of it because I don't even live. I've heard people say for years, God don't need my money. And I've always said, you're right, he needs his. You ain't got no money, chief. You own nothing, possess nothing, control nothing. You see, our hearts and our giving. Now, I've heard people say ever since I was a little boy that Jesus taught more about hell than he did anything else. Truth is, it's a lie. He actually only brought up the grave twice, and the other 12 times he talked about a valley over in Jerusalem. Talked a lot about the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, like, like 20 times more than anything else. But what the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation talks about more than anything else is what we do with our money. See, a lot of times in church, we don't want to talk about this stuff because you know what? Let's be honest. We get a revelation of grace and we were faithfully tithing. A lot of us, we did it for 30, 40 years because we were told if you don't tithe, the car's going to break down. I literally, I mean, I will never forget one of the elders at my dad's church. I was preaching one Sunday. I got done preaching. The elder's wife walked up to me and she said, Jamie, would you pray for me? I said, what's going on? She said, I was just diagnosed with breast cancer. Would you pray for me? I said, do you tithe? She said, well, things have been a little tight lately. I said, that's why you got cancer, and I walk away. Didn't even pray for her. 
Trust me. I got down on my knees and asked for forgiveness for about eight, about eight years later. But I mean, when you're raised in that stuff, you're terrified not to. You're like, if I don't, let's go. I mean, my dad used to tell the story. I, I used to pride myself in this. When my dad asked for my mom's hand in marriage, my grandfather, his father-in-law only asked two things. He said, number one, if you answer these two correct, you can have my daughter. He said, do you tithe? My dad said, yes. What's the second question? Net or gross? Seriously. And my grandfather wasn't a believer. He just believed in the principle. He was a very wealthy businessman. And he had, he had learned to be a giver. He did learn the principle of it. But it was still law-driven. And he didn't serve God because the preachers told him you couldn't be wealthy and serve God. So he would fill the pastor's freezer every year, buy him a suit, buy, buy the wife a bunch of clothes, and buy him half a cow. But he wouldn't attend church because they told him he couldn't be wealthy and serve God. And he just had a knack for it. He could, it's just a gift. He had a grace on him. I used to pride myself that in my five years of rebellion against God, from thir- six years, 13 to 19, I still never not tithed. Because I remember I used to say, it's one thing to be rebellious, nothing to be cursed. <laughs> and I prided myself in that until the Holy Spirit whispered one day and he said, man, stop with all that arrogant old covenant mentality of what you did. He said, I had mercy on you because I'm good. I didn't have anything to do with the money you gave. But in the old covenant, there wasn't an accident that in Malachi 3, God said, bring all the tithe into the storehouse so that there's what in the house? Meat. Some translations say food. In other words, the giving fed God. Because the giving was never about the percentage. It was never about money. It was never about produce. It was always about the heart. See, that's why when you preach a message of radical love and radical grace, it actually exposes what's in someone's heart. Because when people have been taught their whole life, you have to do this or you'll be cursed. And now you tell them you don't have to do that to be, and you won't be cursed. Actually, Jesus redeemed you from the curse. And then folks are like, woo! Then they don't give nothing. What did it do? It just exposed that you never wanted to give anything. Giving was never in your heart. You only did it because you were trying to avoid something else. See, that's why it's a heart motivator. Paul Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 8. He said, if you're going to abound in anything, he said, if you're going to abound in love, if you're going to abound in word, abound in deed, make sure that you abound in the grace of giving. And then he goes on to say something very powerful. He said, no, I don't say this by commandment. I love that he put that in there. He's like, I'm not making a new rule for you. But he says, your giving proves the sincerity of your love. See, when our heart is for someone, no one has to twist their arm to give to them. No, nobody has to twist my arm. Every time I left yesterday, my granddaughter gave me a hug before I left, and she said, Papa, you going to bring me a toy? 
like, of course I am. It doesn't matter if you got your own room of toys. I love her. And every time I go on a trip, you going to bring me a toy? Of course I'm going to bring you a toy. She don't care if it's from the dollar store. It's just the fact one of her love languages is gifts and surprises, guaranteed. I could tell that already. She loves those toys. You see, Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 9, and I need you to listen close to this, and then I'm going to wind this down. He said that God doesn't want you to give grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a, a cheerful, hilarious giver. And God will cause all grace to abound towards you, that you having all sufficiency in all things will be able to give to every good work. But then he says this, your giving causes through you thanksgiving unto God. And when you read that in English, you're like, okay, so when I'm a giver, it causes me to be grateful. But the word thanksgiving is the Greek word Eucharist. Do we have any former Catholics in here? The whole Catholic mass was called the Holy what? The Holy Eucharist. Because it was all based around the table of the Lord. And Paul literally says that our giving spreads a table. Because what it does is it's proving our heart. That if God, we've heard it said before, and sometimes the cliches have made it old, but some of the cliches are true. I heard someone say years ago, you can fake your worship, you can fake a lot of your Christianity, but you can't fake your giving. Because where your treasure is, is where your heart is. And right now, we have churches all over America that are not only struggling financially, many of them are shutting down because people are like, well, we don't have to do any of that. And the truth is, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything for his love. You don't have to do anything for your salvation. The truth is, you sim. the work is to believe. But at the same time, if you're part of a family and if you love one another and you love what God is doing in a place, then you have a heart to sow into it. If you don't, it's proving I know I'm preaching to the choir here tonight because, but I pray you hear my heart in this. Listen, this thing is so much bigger than money because all money represents is your heart and your time. And if you don't have a heart to do that, see, I I, want to spread a table for him. I, I think there's a reason why many times before we get fed the word, we get an opportunity to minister to the Lord in worship, and then we get an opportunity to spread a table in giving. Hmm? We're able to minister to him first. Then he's able to pour back, spread a table for you, sup with you, then you with me. How many know his is better? But in his mind, ours is. He's like, what you spread for me is so tasty. It's so awesome. It's in the old covenant. God said, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. But on the new covenant, he's telling us. Because we not only feed God with our fellowship and our faith and by giving him our heart and with our giving, but we also feed him by taking care of his family. As Jesus one day said this, he said, I was hungry. You didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. In other words, how you care for the marginalized is actually how you care for me. You want to know how to feed me? Feed them. 
because I was hungry. You didn't do anything about it. I t- true religion, caring for widows, caring for orphans, caring for the disenfranchised. He's like, listen, I'm showing you how to feed me. You feed me with intimacy and without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. He said, man, your faith is a pleasure to me. When you believe me, that's why Paul said, examine yourself to see if you be in faith. He didn't say examine yourself to see if you be in Christ. He didn't say examine yourself to see if you be in grace. That's automatic. But examine yourself to see if you're still in trust, confidence, belief, Are you still aligning yourself with him? He's aligned with you. That never changes. You can't get rid of him. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. But we can walk away from fellowship with him. We choose to have intimacy with him. My my father is now 75 years old. He's he's, he's, he's a great-grandfather. My relationship with my dad will never change. He's my father, I'm his son. Nothing can change that because I was born into that. But fellowship is a choice. I have to choose to call him on the phone. Hey, Dad, how you doing? I have to choose to stop by the house. See, for years we taught people that weren't in fellowship that they were no longer in relationship. That's why you got saved 100 times before you were 20 years old. You kept running to the altar to try to get back into relationship when you never got out of relationship. You might have been out of fellowship. But you can shift that by just simply submitting fresh to him. And that doesn't mean, listen, I pray that y'all hear my heart. Listen, this isn't about trying to put obligations on you. The truth is, God's like, I've already fed you everything you need for this life. But I also get hungry for you. I, I, I get I get hungry to know everything about you and I want you to know all this stuff about me. I want us to have an actual relationship. And going into 2020, God just kept speaking in my heart. Hindsight is 2020. Don't forget those foundations. Don't forget that this thing is not just about preaching and teaching and memorization and, and, and how much revelation you have or how many things you can now get away with because you're under grace. It's still about a relationship. It's always been about a relationship. It's not about who gets to go to heaven and and who doesn't go to heaven. It's about a relationship. I preach the gospel not because I'm trying to get people out of hell and get them into heaven. I preach the gospel because I want them to enjoy the reconciled relationship that was purchased for them 2,000 years ago. That's why we preach the gospel. It's about a relationship. It's never changed. For some reason, we've made it all about all kinds of other stuff. Because see, how I treat you how I feed you. See, when we gather together corporately, it's not just the worship team that feeds our soul and the pastor that feeds our soul. Every one of you in here are carrying something that somebody in the room might need. And when we care for the body, when we care for his family, we're also showing, listen, you know what? There's something that I, I, Father, I'm feeding you today by being a blessing to others. That's how I care for them. It's also how I care for you. I'd said if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I don't know about you, but I'm glad he's telling us. I'm glad he's letting us know, listen, I'm hungry for some stuff. And you can feed me, and it's not sweat, and it's not labor. 
I want you to simply believe and walk out the relationship of this new life that's on the inside of you. Don't get caught up in all kinds of other stuff. Don't get caught up in churchiness. This is still about a relationship. We can get so busy doing good church stuff that we forget about our relationship. Because I only have so much to give by me, first of all, waiting and receiving. It's about that life that's coming to me as his wife, his bride, that then I as a son have actually something to pour into others. That should be an overflow of our life. We shouldn't show up on Sunday saying, I'm just trying to get there because I've had a rough week. The truth is, man, his life is flowing through us all week long, all week long. I don't, I don't go in and out of his presence. I'm always there. And he's speaking to me on a regular basis. He's, I could be in a conversation with someone and all of a sudden he starts saying, I want you to do this for them. This is what they need right now. They need $100 right now because you have no idea what they're going through. They need a hug right now. And I forget about 12 years ago at one of our conferences here in Michigan, Dr. Robert Cornwall was one of my, died this last year in his 90s. He's one of our papas in the faith. He got up and he said, I could preach right now all kinds of things about God. But I just feel like somebody here just needs a hug. Who needs a hug? And there were like two or three people that ran up, but he just gave them just a pop a hug. And the truth is, that's what they needed more than preaching. He said, who just needs a hug? It was like one of the most precious things. I don't even remember what he preached that night. I was just still thinking about, man, how beautiful was that? He just gave, why? Because he was feeding God by being a blessing to his body. And I've, I've, I've reconfigured my thoughts again to say, God, I, I, want, I want to be that person that's focused on purpose, spreading a table for you. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.